Igwit, Agus Falchagashra, Pod Crayla, Fela Stara Fingal, Gavilas Fiha. Hello, and welcome to the Fingal Festival of History podcast series 2020, brought to you by Fingal Libraries. This talk was given by Brian Hanley. Brian is a professional historian, author, and lecturer on modern Ireland. He is currently an assistant professor in Trinity College, Dublin. His area of expertise include the IRA, Irish Republicanism, Labour and Radicalism, 1916 Easter Rising, the 1918 General Election, Irish Revolution and Civil War, Irish America and the Northern Irish Conflict. The talk is titled Tans and Auxiliaries. Brian will discuss the role of the Black and Tans and Auxiliary Forces during the War of Independence. Firstly, I want to thank the organisers of the Fingal Festival of History for the opportunity to speak here. It was obvious from the popular reaction to the then government's attempt to include the Royal Irish Constabulary in the official programme of state commemoration this year that feelings about the Black and Tans run very deep in Ireland. That controversy that ensued arguably even impacted on the general election earlier this year. It's also obvious that there remains a great deal of confusion about the Black and Tans, who they were, and what their relationship to the Irish police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, was. It also appears at an official level, at least, that there's a significant level of ignorance about the subject. In October 2019, for instance, the then Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, described the members of the RIC who were killed between 1919 and 1921 as having been murdered. He also claimed that they were only doing what police officers do. As they saw it, they were protecting their communities from harm. But the story of the RIC under British rule was never that of a normal police force, even before the revolutionary era. And as a paramilitary force between 1919 and 21, the RIC were combatants, not innocent victims. In January 2019, I contributed an opinion piece along those lines to an Irish Times centenary supplement year before the controversy blew up. But in contrast, Stephen Collins of that newspaper is one of those who supports the idea of a state commemoration for the RIC. And he's consistently used the figure of 550 for Irish policemen killed in that period. However, many of those included in that figure were not Irish. And though they had joined the Irish police, never came here with any intention of doing police work. While some have maintained that it was not intended to commemorate the Black and Tans or Auxiliaries in commemorating the RIC, in reality it's impossible not to commemorate them, as they were an integral part of that force from 1920 onwards. At least 150 of the RIC dead during the War of Independence were men born outside Ireland, but a number of the Irish fatalities were also Tans or Auxiliaries. Constable Joseph Burke, for example, a native of Cork, was shot dead in Tipperary in June 1921. Burke, a former soldier, had joined the RIC in June 1920, a year before, when it must have been clear that his duties would not involve serving summonses and searching for puccine makers. That he'd been recommended for police service by District Inspector Oswald Swansea, widely believed to have been involved in the murder of the Sinn Féin mayor of Cork, Tomás McCartan, suggests that Burke was politically loyal to the British state. And portraying the policemen who died as naive victims of circumstances robs them of agency. Many of them made a conscious decision to become policemen in a war situation. And because of the date he joined the police, Constable Joseph Burke, though an Irishman, was also a black and tan. 
And I'll come back to this in terms of discussing the TANs and the auxiliaries. Much of the debate this year, however, was also in many ways very partitionist. The RIC were an all-Ireland force, but people spoke about them as if they'd only policed the area that became the 26-county state. And we can't really discuss uh, the police in that time without reference to what was happening in Ulster. The career of John William Nixon is perhaps instructive here. A native of Cavan, Nixon joined the Royal Irish Constabulary in 1899 at the age of 22. He served in Donegal, Antrim, Mayo, Fermanagh and Dublin, and in August 1917 he was appointed a district inspector. He was then the youngest such officer to have risen to that uh, rank from the, uh, the ordinary ranks of the force. During those years, Nixon must have carried out many of the normal duties of policing, which were referenced repeatedly by those who argued in support of a state commemoration for the RAC. But by 1921, Inspector Nixon had acquired a fearsome reputation in Belfast, believed by nationalists there to be the leader of a murder gang who'd carried out assassinations of Republicans and others perceived as disloyal. Nixon was thought responsible for the notorious McMahon family murders during March 1922. Later that year, he would become one of those 1,350 RIC men who transferred to the Royal Ulster Constabulary on its foundation. Now, Nixon's story illustrates why the idea of an uncontentious commemoration of the RIC was always an impossibility, because Nixon was not a tan or an auxiliary, yet this old RIC man, so to speak, was clearly involved in atrocities. Now, to be fair, the situation of the RIC in Belfast was complicated. As the force there contained a large number of Southern Catholics, it was actually distrusted by Unionists. Hence the formation of the Ulster Special Constabulary, USC, in the autumn of 1920. By June 1921, nearly 20,000 men had enrolled in different sections of the USC, popularly known as the Specials. The Specials are also part of the story of the RIC, barracked alongside policemen and so on, and their fatalities make up some of the figure of 550 mentioned earlier. So for a variety of reasons, I was very much opposed to the Irish state officially commemorating men who fought against its independence. But while I've given you my personal view and the reasons for it, it's also a historian's job to understand and examine the context in which people operated and to try and understand their motivations, even those of people we don't agree with or maybe don't like. And in putting together this talk, I owe a debt of work uh, to the people like Sean William Gannon, Anne Dolan, Porrig O'Rourke, David Leeson and John Dorney and so on, who've written very illuminatingly about policing in this era. As I said at the outset, the Tans loom large in the story of the War of Independence. Indeed, some Republicans refer to the entire conflict as the Tan War, which gives the impression the Black and Tans were the only force involved on the British side. In movies such as Michael Collins, and more centrally, in The Wind That Shakes the Barley, we see men who we assume to be tans carry out brutal acts. In reality, those men were auxiliaries, because the black and tans, despite the legend, did not, except for a very brief period in early 1920, ever wear a different uniform from the RIC. The average black and tan, certainly by 1921, looked no different than an ordinary Irish policeman. Indeed, they lived alongside and patrolled with RIC officers who'd been enrolled before 1920, and until they opened their mouths, and as we will see, sometimes not even then, people would not have known they were tans. So I'll give you another example. Three RIC constables were killed while off duty at Stranuden, County Monaghan, on the 22nd of January 1921. 
Constable George Clark was 19 and single from the Edgware Road area of London. He had just one month's service in the police. Constable Frederick Taylor was 24, single and from Plymouth. He had just two months' service in the RIC. Finally, Constable Robert Hegarty from Cork City had joined the police in October 1920. What the three men had in common was that they were all ex-British soldiers. They joined the police in late 1920 in the midst of the War of Independence, and all three were black and tans, even though one of them had been born in Cork. To people in Monaghan at the time, they would not have looked different from their longer-serving colleagues uh, in the police there. The auxiliaries, in contrast, though without a standardised uniform themselves, usually wore Tam O'Shanter or Glengarry caps, customised their attire somewhat, often wearing holsters slung low, like gunslingers, for example, sometimes displayed their service ribbons and decorations from the war, or the badges of their former regiments, sometimes wearing airman's caps and goggles as well. And the majority of photographs in school history books and also in the popular media and elsewhere, which are captioned as those of black and tans, are in reality of auxiliaries. The auxiliaries did look very different from everybody else. By 1921, the black and tans were uniformed exactly the same as the Royal Irish Constabulary. Now, I should note, but by the time these three men were killed in Monaghan in January 1921, the tans were already shorthand for reprisals and brutality, including, of course, the sack of Balbriggan the previous September. But the ordinary police and the regular British Army also committed atrocities, and in general throughout the whole period, it was the auxiliaries who behaved worst of all. Many at the time assumed that the brutality of the black and tans was because they were composed, to quote, of the criminal classes and the dregs of English cities, or the offscourings of English industrial populations. It was widely accepted that the tans were comprised of the scum of English jails. Certainly Republicans asserted this at the time, and many people still believe it. My mother often told me similar stories when I was a child, for example, but it was not the case. You couldn't join the police force if you had a criminal record, and the tans and auxiliaries were members of the Irish police. Today there's even some people who now use the word tan as shorthand for all English, or indeed British people. And that's particularly annoying, I think, because in part, even in 1921, the tans were not popular in Britain itself at all, and secondly, because at least 20% of these men, if not more, were actually Irish. In Porrig O'Rourke's study of Revolutionary Clare, he found that there were at least 46 black and tans from that county, mostly, though not all, ex-soldiers and mostly Catholics, and there were also 15 auxiliaries from Clare, almost all ex-officers and almost all, again, Catholics. There's many examples of that. 26-year-old Galway man Edward Noonan joined the RIC in March 1920, was killed that September in Tipperary, was married with three children, was a veteran of the Great War, he was badly wounded in that war. Another veteran, this time an officer, was District Inspector James Brady from Dublin, who'd served with the Irish Guards in World War I. Brady, whose uncle had actually been a Home Rule MP, was killed in Sligo in the autumn of 1920, having joined the police force that spring. Again, these men are Irish black and tans because of the time they chose to join the police. There were other, even perhaps stranger cases. 1916 veteran Patrick Egan remembered of his battalion in Jacobs that we had a lad named George O'Neill. He was a glass embosser and he worked in Mercer Street. The latter was a very silent individual. We never felt at home with him. When we laughed and chatted over our experiences, O'Neill wore a cynical smile. 
It came as no surprise in later years when I saw him wearing black and tan uniform. Now, a 1916 man in the tans? It seems so. At the time of the debate over the opening up of Crow Park to other sporting associations, the former Armagh player, Jarlett Burns, commented that many people were opposed to this because they feared the prospect of the grandson of a black and tan playing at the site of the Bloody Sunday Massacre. Given the number of Irish tans, it is likely that that may have already happened, and not when England played rugby at Crow Park. And the rest of the force was not exclusively British, either. There was a sprinkling of men from across the empire. Australians, New Zealanders, Newfoundlanders, Canadians. They were even men who'd been attached to the Chinese Labour Corps and the Burma police. They were almost all ex-servicemen, of course, but not only soldiers. They included Royal Marines, sailors and airmen. Perhaps one in ten auxiliaries had been in the Royal Air Force. Indeed, several of the auxiliaries who died at Kilmichael in November 1920 were RAF veterans. Q Company of the Auxiliaries, which was formed to police the Dublin port area, was made up largely of ex-naval personnel. Their IRA opponents on the docks were also Q Company of the Volunteers. The majority of Tans and Auxiliaries were usually single men in their early 20s, largely from southern England, or the greater London area more precisely. But there were plenty of Scottish and Welsh recruits and men from the north of England as well, such as those from Lanark, Selkirk and Yorkshire, killed at Drumkeen, County Limerick, in February 1921, when 11 policemen, eight of them black and tans, died. So at Drumkeen, which is the police's uh, biggest single locks for the RIC rather than the auxiliaries, you have three long-standing Irish policemen killed along with eight black and tans. Seven of those black and tans came from Britain, but one of them, Michael Doyle, was a Dubliner. In religious terms, the Tans and Auxiliaries reflected the makeup of the British population. They were usually Anglican, but there was a significant number of Presbyterians and Methodists, depending on where the men were from, and also a very significant number of Catholic recruits. There were also at least 30 Jewish Tans or Auxiliaries. Prior to military service, Black and Tans tended to have held a mixture of skilled and unskilled working class occupations, including miners, carpenters, electricians, grocers' assistants, labourers, footmen and clerks. That was in contrast to the usual Irish police recruit, prior to 1919 at least, who were very often farmers' sons. But the Tans were not the dregs of British society, they were a cross-section of the working class and sometimes the lower middle class. And the fact is, of course, as I've mentioned, that a significant number of Irishmen, often war veterans, chose to join the police to defend British rule, presumably for a variety of political and personal reasons, or perhaps economic ones as well. Others, of course, chose not to. During 1919, some 12% of RIC officers resigned from the force. In 1920, 3,229 officers left the RIC, with a further 3,208 resigning in 1921. Some of these people left the police through fear or because their families had faced boycott and intimidation. Some of the departing officers, however, left because they wanted no part in a war against the independence movement. However, there were ample replacements for them. And this is where the story, of course, of the Black and Tans and Auxiliary begins. Because the context for their recruitment was both the crisis of British authority in Ireland and also the stress of Britain's post-war imperial commitments. By the end of 1919, the Irish police were increasingly demoralised by boycott and social ostracism, and by 1920 were facing a greater armed threat from the IRA. 
As early as May 1919, Walter Long, the First Lord of the Admiralty, was urging the Viceroy for Ireland, Lord French, to use demobilised soldiers to augment the police. The RIC Inspector General, Joseph Byrne, was opposed to this idea, and he warned that ex-soldiers might not be amenable to police discipline. He was seen, however, by his peers as soft on Irish nationalism and was ultimately replaced by his deputy, TJ Smith, who was in favour of Long's idea of bringing in ex-soldiers. So in December 1919, Dublin Castle authorised police recruitment in Britain, and RIC depots were opened in London, Liverpool and Glasgow, and men began joining the RIC from Britain over the next month. Initially, the uptake was fairly modest, perhaps because there was very little financial inducement in the beginning, but in July 1920, RIC starting salary was doubled, and over the next year, around 10,000 men joined the Irish police perhaps 8,000 in Britain and 2,000 in Ireland itself. The first recruits from Britain had began arriving in January 1920, and after some very cursory training in the Phoenix Park depot, they were sent to RIC barracks across the country. It was these early recruits who were kitted out in makeshift part police, part army uniform, and who were supposedly then dubbed the Black and Tans after being compared in Limerick to the Beagles of the Scartine Hunt. Anyway, the name stuck, even though, as I've stressed, most Tans never wore this mixture of uniform. But though more and more of these men were sent to Ireland during 1920, things got worse for the British authorities. Coordinated IRA attacks on barracks and local symbols of British authority throughout the spring, general strikes, boycotts, Sinn Féin victories in local elections, and the IRA's assault on Dublin Castle's G Division all gathered pace. The question is, however, if by mid-1920 British rule was increasingly in crisis and they seemed to be losing control of the, much of the country, why did they not just send in more soldiers? In May 1920, for example, General Neville Macready had demanded from the British Cabinet 5,000 infantry, 600 wireless and technical personnel, a large intelligence staff and over 200 motor vehicles for Ireland. The problem was these men were simply not there, or at least the British government was reluctant to send them. At the end of the Great War, there were over 3 million men in the British military. By 1920, the army had been reduced in strength to 300,000. Sir Henry Wilson, the Longford-born chief of Imperial Staff, made clear on numerous occasions that he felt there were not enough soldiers to look after what he called the Empire's storm centres, Ireland, India, Egypt and Mesopotamia. Not only there, but British troops were in occupation of parts of Germany, garrisoned in Silesia, intervening at various stages in the Russian Civil War, landing at Constantinople and engaged in Greece, and then crucially also perhaps expected to fight in Britain itself. The use of huge numbers of troops backed up by tanks and with naval support in Glasgow in January 1919 during the engineering strikes there was thought by the British authorities to be very likely again. So colonial rebellions and working class revolt occupied the minds of the British military establishment in the years after the war. Ireland was just always one of a number of problems. Revolt in India, revolt in Egypt and so on and troops being sent there all the time. Furthermore, the ranks of the British Army were being replenished by 1920, not by veterans of the Great War, but by young recruits. Hence, Henry Wilson would complain in 1922 that the majority of the troops in Ireland are boys under 19 years of age, or with less than six months' service, what he considered wholly untrained, raw children. Among the troops engaged in putting down rebellions in Egypt and India were Irish regiments, 
but there were potential political difficulties in deploying the Leinsters or the Munster Fusiliers or the Connacht Rangers in Ireland itself, so they couldn't be sent to Ireland either. There was also then Indian and colonial troops, but they simply could not be used in the United Kingdom. So in terms of manpower, there was a huge stress on the British military. And also politically, the British government were of course claiming that there was no war in Ireland. What was happening in Ireland was that a murder gang, completely unrepresentative of the people, were terrorising a loyal population. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, asserted, you do not declare war against rebels. Therefore, what was happening in Ireland was supposed to be a job for the Irish police. Maybe the problem could be solved if the police were actually battle-hardened soldiers. In response to MacReady's demands, Winston Churchill proposed instead what he called 8,000 old soldiers to augment the RIC. Though a hardline unionist, Sir Henry Wilson, decried what he called this panic measure of raising 8,000 scallywags. He didn't have a high opinion of the people who might join. Nevertheless, the Cabinet agreed with Churchill's proposal of a new emergency force to bolster police, and the result then, in mid-1920, was the creation of the Auxiliary Division of the RIC, raised from July that year from demobilised officers. So we already have from January the Black and Tans, we now from July have the Auxiliaries, both part of the Irish Police Force. The Auxiliaries eventually comprised 21 companies of about 70 to 100 so-called temporary uh, cadets. They were deployed in areas of significant IRA activity and were nominally under the control of the local RIC command, though in practice they had a very large measure of autonomy. They were supported by a separate force of 1,000 men of the Veterans and Drivers Division, who were usually men over 35, again, all ex-servicemen, who were recruited separately to drive armoured vehicles and trucks and so on. The auxiliaries were paid a pound a day, which was double that of the regular police, making them the highest paid uniformed force in the world at the time. This was supplemented by generous allowances. The drivers earned 10 shillings a day. So these were well-paid forces. The auxiliaries usually came from more middle-class backgrounds than the tans, but the war had allowed men from the ranks to advance, so there were officers from more humble origins as well. They also included men from very upper-class backgrounds and those who had been high-ranking officers in the Great War. Lieutenant Colonel J.H.M. Kirkwood, for example, was a native of Mayo, but he'd been a Tory MP for South East Essex from 1910 to 12 before serving in the Great War. He was an auxiliary, but he later resigned in protest at some of the force's activities. Cadet Bernard Beard was fatally wounded in a gun battle on Dublin's Great Brunswick Street on the 14th of March 1921, had been a Brigadier General, no less, in the 112th Infantry Brigade in the Great War. He also held the Military Cross. There were 281 auxiliary cadets who had won medals in the Great War, including three Victoria Cross holders, which is the highest medal in the British military. One man who'd won, won the French Medal Militaire, only awarded for outstanding courage, and over 30 men who'd been decorated more than once. District Inspector Francis Worthington Craven, who was killed at Balnalee, County Longford, in February 1921, was a former Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander. A sailor since 1903, he held the Distinguished Service Order, the Distinguished Service Cross, and the United States Distinguished Service Medal and Navy Cross. As commander of the destroyer HMS Munsey, he was credited with saving hundreds of American soldiers from a sinking troop ship off the northwest of Ireland in 1918. Craven had only joined the RIC auxiliaries in December 1920, two months before he was killed. 
Of the four auxiliary dead at Balnalee, another Harold Clayton from Yorkshire had also been decorated for bravery, winning a Distinguished Conduct Medal while serving with the Royal Field Artillery. So in many cases, these men were clearly not bad soldiers. In fact, lots of them had exemplary military records. The IRA leader Ernie O'Malley, who was held captive by the auxiliaries in Dublin Castle during late 1920, made this observation about them. He said, the company was made up by soldiers of fortune, men of private means, clerks, journalists, and a few from the universities. Indeed, one of the men that O'Malley conversed with was a Trinity graduate, and he twigged that O'Malley was probably a student himself. O'Malley continued, many had probably been drawn by the good pay and the swaggering efficiency of an elastic discipline. They were all officers, therefore gentlemen. They had seen service in France, Mesopotamia, India, Russia, Gallipoli, and held rank from major down. Some were boys, the majority were mature. A few had greying hairs. There was a sense of individual assurance, lusty animals, conscious of their strength after hard fighting. They had been tested in command. Their morale was good. In an emergency, they would stand out, but they might be worn down by the lack of organized warfare that suited them. Few might be elastic enough for guerrilla fighting. When I sat at the fire, I could see brooding bitterness in many faces. The world war had left its mark. Behind organized efficiency and a sense of comradeship, was a glum, swarthy melancholy. Now, O'Malley was quite impressed by the auxiliaries and he thought they were going to make a fairly dangerous adversary for the IRA. But he was right in the sense that even though many of them were decorated and had fought in the First World War, they were not necessarily prepared for the kind of warfare they faced in Ireland. The aforementioned Francis Craven, who was killed at Balnalee, was from a prosperous background. One of his brothers had been a director of the arms company Vickers. Even though Craven himself had been declared bankrupt during 1920, however, which might have been one of the reasons he became an auxiliary. No doubt pay was a factor in attracting recruits. But there were also other reasons, because there were many other unemployed war veterans in Britain, and most of them didn't join the Black and Tans or the auxiliaries. And I think we're familiar very much with one narrative of the First World War, the mud, blood and horror of the trenches. Many accounts about the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries assumed that they were damaged by the war, and this is one reason for their brutality. But for some of those who fought in the war, if they were lucky enough to survive, their memory was not of horror, but of camaraderie, esprit de corps, and friendship born in combat. Some of them claimed to have enjoyed the war, or at least never to have experienced anything as exhilarating before. And they were not prepared to give that up, despite society being, in theory, at peace. So it isn't just that you're unemployed or that you, you haven't much money that might entice you to become a black and tan or auxiliary. The fact is some of these men were looking for war and looking for violence. We sometimes forget that the Great War didn't end over much of Europe in November 1918. It arguably continued until 1923, in parts of Central and Eastern Europe at least. About five million people died between 1918 and 1923 in conflict in Europe. And veterans of the Great War were central to much of that violence and also to confrontational politics in many countries. The Freikorps in Germany, for example, which a couple of Irishmen actually served, believe it or not, the Fascisti in Italy, and paramilitary groups and militias across the continent were part of this process. You often find veterans of the war involved in them. And I think the Tans and the Auxiliaries are part of that story too. Ireland offered an outlet to them for their violence and their desire for combat. And also, once in Ireland, they were subject to very little control. A feature of both the Tans and the Auxiliaries was heavy drinking, looting, robbery, and in the case of the Oxies, enormous mess bills, and so on. 
Pubs and shops raided by them were routinely robbed. Sometimes banks or post office raids were carried out by TANs or auxiliaries in and out of uniform. In October 1920, for example, a group of auxiliaries robbed wages from a creamery at Kells. In December 1920, a group of black and tans held up a bank in Strokestown, County Roscommon. There's other examples of that. The only member of the Crown Forces to be executed for murder during the War of Independence was a black and tan called William Mitchell, who was a veteran of the Somme and who was found guilty of killing a local magistrate, Robert Dixon, during a robbery at his home in County Wicklow. Mitchell was hanged in June 1921. Again, there are some doubts actually about his guilt. During that period, around 40 auxiliaries deserted, which for officers was a very shocking figure. And very quickly, black and tannery became a term in Britain for state abuse of the law. And reports of the conduct of these forces became a huge political issue in Britain itself. In April 1921, for example, MPs at Westminster debated a case from County Limerick where auxiliaries had shot dead a man called Dennis O'Donovan, the owner of a hotel at Castle Connell, as well as two ordinary policemen who had initially mistaken a plainclothes auxiliary raiding party for the IRA. A wild gun battle had ensued and guests at the hotel were terrorised by the auxiliaries in the aftermath. Now, as some British MPs were familiar with the area and the hotel, this was raised in the Commons itself. But there's a whole litany of events which are discussed in Britain, including the sack of Balbriggan, for example. Among the grim list of horrors with which the auxiliaries in particular were associated were, of course, Crow Park on Bloody Sunday, although they were not the only force there, the shooting of pregnant mother Eileen Quinn in Gort, the kidnapping and killing of Father Michael Griffin, who was a Republican priest in Galway, the brutal torture and killing of Patrick and Harry Loch Nan, two IRA volunteers, the abduction and drowning of Nicholas Prendergast, who was actually a former British soldier in Fermoy County Cork, the assassination of 63-year-old Peter O'Carroll in Manor Street in Stony Batter in Dublin, the winter of 1920, and the murders of the Sinn Féin mayor of Limerick, George Clancy, and his predecessor, Michael O'Callaghan, in March 1921. The destruction of creameries, pubs and shops, along with private homes, was routine, particularly in reprisal for IRA attacks. Beatings and casual brutality were the norm. Torture was utilised widely. But many of these killings had a purpose, with Republicans or their families or supporters singled out. And while reprisals had both bottom-up and top-down features, the important point is that they were sanctioned at the highest level. Sometimes when you read about the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries, you get the impression that these men are crazy, that they're drunk, and that they're capable of anything, but there often was a purpose. The O'Carroll killing, for example, in Stony Batter was of the father of a number of active Irish volunteers. He was definitely singled out. Similarly with the killing of George Clancy and Michael O'Callaghan and Limerick, it was done to try and make it look like it was part of an internal Republican feud. And the key point, of course, is that it's not only Black and Tans or auxiliaries, Regular Irish policemen, regular British soldiers are also involved in reprisals. And the key point is that these are endorsed at the highest level of government as a way of terrorising the population away from support for the IRA. The police certainly suffered heavy casualties. At least between 450 or 550, depending on what figure you want, were killed in the conflict, far more than regular British soldiers. One estimate is that half the police dead were TANs or auxiliaries. Biggest single loss for the auxiliaries, of course, was 17 killed at Kilmichael in Cork in November 1920. The IRA also managed to target some senior figures in the force. Major John McKinnon, who was the feared commander of H Company of the Auxiliaries in Tralee, was shot dead by a sniper as he played golf 
in April 1921. The gunman himself was a, actually also a former British soldier. The widespread press coverage of what these forces were doing in Ireland ultimately proved crucial to undermining the British government's narrative about what was happening here. Two days after the sack of Balbriggan, the Manchester Guardian carried a damning editorial under the headline, An Irish Louvain, where the paper's editor, C.P. Scott, asserted, while we have all been leading the world in talk about security for Armenians and freedom for little Belgium, we have ourselves drifted into a position where our criminal failure to govern a conquered white people stinks in the nostrils of the world worse than any other contemporary scandal of misgovernment. And we sometimes underestimate how important this was in creating a mood for a settlement in Britain. The headline, An Irish Louvain, about Balbriggan is very significant because Louvain was a town in Belgium destroyed by the Germans in the uh, autumn of 1914 and seen at the time as justification for war against them. Tans, of course, and auxiliaries probably thought differently. A former black and tan, Douglas Duff, later argued that, given a free hand, we could have restored order in Ireland in a month, even if it had been a piece of a Roman style, the kind that required the making of a desolation. Now, this is a familiar response from the military establishment, a form of a stab in the back legend. If only we'd been given the tools to carry out the job, we would have done it. In reality, of course, it ignores how much repression there was, but it also ignores how unpopular British policy was among British people themselves. On the copy of the newspaper covering the death of District Inspector Craven in his local library in Barrow and Furness, someone scrawled, he won't be wanting any more blood money jobs. If people remember the TV series When the Boat Comes In from the 1970s, they might recall an episode featuring a storyline about recruitment to the Tans and how many ordinary British people were disgusted by the idea of men being paid to go and make war in Ireland. The Black and Tans and Auxiliaries were not popular in Britain itself. After the treaty in December 1921, the disbandment of the Irish police was announced in January 1922 and was concluded by August 1922. The auxiliaries were the first to be stood down, followed up by those recruited after January 1920, and finally by the old RSC itself. What happened to them? Well, over 250 former Tans or auxiliaries joined the new Royal Ulster Constabulary, as did over 1,000 former RAC men. However, police forces in Britain were very wary of recruiting black and tans or auxiliaries because of their reputation. So indeed were private businesses, with former tans soon claiming there was discrimination against them in terms of employment. During March 1922, veterans of the RIC held protests in London to publicise their grievances. Onlookers were reported to be decidedly unsympathetic. Now, it should be noted that the RIC, including the TANs, received very extensive compensation packages as part of their disbandment. Ironically, the auxiliaries didn't qualify for this due to their status as temporary cadets. A significant number of former TANs and OGSIs opted for imperial migration to Canada, where a number of land settlement schemes targeted ex-RIC officers. About 480 black and TANs and 160 auxiliaries joined a newly raised striking force of the Palestine Police, under the command of the former Irish police chief, Major General Hugh Tudor. Where do the others go? It's very difficult to say. The bookmaker, William Hill, claimed to have served as a black and tan in Fermoy County Cork, though there's some dispute about that story. And it's unusual because Hill was one of the few people who actually advertised the fact that he'd been a tan. George Nathan, the auxiliary officer believed responsible for the curfew murders of Clancy and O'Callaghan in Limerick, died fighting on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War, and there he served alongside several former IRA men. 
So tracing the careers of former towns and auxiliaries will actually be very interesting, I think, but I don't know enough about it. To conclude, the towns and auxiliaries were the brutal cutting edge of British counterinsurgency in Ireland. They deserve their reputations. But seeing them as drunks or war-damaged brutes does not tell the whole story. They were sent by Britain's educated elite, who themselves were prepared to endorse far worse in other corners of the empire. It is Lloyd George and Winston Churchill we should blame for these men. And we should understand that the issue at stake was denial of an independence won at the ballot box in December 1918. And that was the context for this war in Ireland. Thank you.